hunter from Mars, his world, and the vile menagerie of villains he must confront. In 1999, screenwriter Tim McCanley's pitched a series titled Bruce Wayne that would show how the young orphan would develop into the Batman. The series would follow his quest for mental and physical perfection in order to battle crime, but it would take the entire series before he'd figure out that the best way to do that would be to dress up as a bat. The WB syndicated television network were very enthused about the idea, and it seemed wide open to develop a Batman series considering that Batman and Robin had flopped two years earlier, and there wasn't much traction on following up on that film franchise. However, as developmental Bruce Wayne moved forward, the Warner Brothers Film Division suddenly got very interested in developing a film that addressed similar themes as the Bruce Wayne series and put the kibosh on Batman on television. However, Tal and Robbins Productions already had a relationship with Warner Brothers Television and they figured if they couldn't do Batman, how about Superman? Alfred Goh and Miles Miller were brought in to develop the concept of Clark Kent's slow, slow, very, very slow development into Superman, and thus Smallville, the television series, was born, debuting on October 16th, 2001. I happened to catch that show during its original broadcast. I didn't make it to the end of the pilot. I think I was really keen on playing Resident Evil Code Veronica at the time, and also I thought the show just sucked. It was very WB teen soap opera-y, and just stupid and kind of boring. I never did really take to Smallville, but I've watched some episodes in the time since then. In particular, my father liked tape most broadcast television that he enjoyed watching. He didn't want to watch the commercials. So he would tape hours and hours of primetime television each night, and then he'd watch it during his days. And so I'd visit with him. He'd often be watching shows like Smallville on his VHS tapes. I found it amusing enough for big-budget fan fiction cosplay, and I did appreciate that some DC heroes I liked were finally getting represented in live-action programming. But even when the Martian detective John Jones was added to the show in 2006, I never felt compelled to keep up with it. I also managed to go seven years of doing a blog about the Martian Manhunter without really getting into his film and television appearances, mainly because I had this anal retentive tendency to want to try to get my own screen caps and do detailed story synopses as though that stuff wasn't already getting done for shows like Justice League and Smallville. But now that the blog has morphed into a podcast, it's much easier to grab a few sound clips and talk a little bit about a TV show. In fact, I think it'll be easier than dealing with comic books. So let's go ahead and dive into John Jones's appearances on Smallville. On November 16, 2006, John Jones made his debut before 4.7 million Americans in the Season 6 Smallville episode, Static. Jones had actually made his live-action debut nearly a decade earlier in the failed pilot for the Justice League TV series, which had not aired in the United States, but was seen in other countries. At the end of Season 5, Clark Kent had been trapped by General Zod in the Phantom Zone. The Phantom Zone was constructed by Superman's father, Jor-El, as another dimensional prison for Kryptonian and other criminals. While in the zone, Clark Kent acquired the Crystal of L, a palm-sized blue crystal in the shape of the famous Superman S, which had a variety of powers, including the ability to send somebody to the Phantom Zone. Clark eventually escapes from the Phantom Zone back to Earth, but unfortunately a selection of zoners, criminals from the Phantom Zone, managed to come to Earth with him. You said it was urgent? It is. A Taiwanese cargo ship was found off the coast of Alaska with its entire crew dead of unknown causes. The details are a bit murky, but the manifest says that its last stop was Bologna Island. Bologna Island? They got hit by a meteor the same day I escaped the Phantom Zone. Where's the ship now? It's being towed to Seattle. I have to go there. Clark, these guys aren't just meteor freaks. They're from galaxies far, far away, and more importantly, they can hurt you. You can't go unarmed. I won't. I have the crystal that Riot gave me. I'll use that against them. 
Once in Seattle, Clark Kent gained entry to a tent where a physician was attempting to do autopsies on the crewmen by pretending to be a first-year medical student. The crewmen's remains were kept in opaque white bags about the size of a potato sack. How many are there? Whole graveyard's worth. How does a body end up in one of those? They have no skeletons. Although I don't know how that's anatomically possible. I mean, someone cut their bones out? <laughs> More like ripped them out. Clean fillet is every one of them. All these bodies are from the ship. These last two, they were dock workers. Whoever was on that ship is on dry land now. The zoner continues his killing streak. Who are you? Someone who's hungry. The zoner turns out to be Dave Batista, former wrestler turned actor who's most assuredly most famous at this point for playing Drax in Guardians of the Galaxy. Here he plays Aldar, who essentially looks like Dave Bautista, except in a raggedy black outfit with funky alien eyes and sharp teeth. We learn that Aldar feeds on the bone marrow of humans, and that's why he's stripping the skeletons out of their bodies. In one moment, we see him pull a spine out of a police officer, and another, we see him raiding bone marrow transplant materials, apparently, where some of the gristle is slapped across some boxes. It's really way more graphic than a Superman TV show ought to be. Speaking of which, Clark Kent finally catches up with Aldar on a dock, and the two engage in fisticuffs. Clark comes armed with the Crystal of L, which will typically banish any phantoms from the Phantom Zone. You stole my food! <laughs> nice try, Krypton Man. You escaped from the Phantom Zone. But I'm no phantom. Aldar threw Clark Kent through the air, into a crane. And by the time Kent came back down, Aldar was gone. Eventually at night, Kent finds Aldar in a warehouse. Just before the two are about to have their rematch, something streaks at super speed just outside of Clark's vision. Your blood must make you strong. I shall taste it. Why are you doing this? Everyone's gotta eat. Aldor has Clark dead to rights, and just before he's about to break the Kryptonian's back, Aldor seizes in pain, screams, and drops dead on the floor. The impression of a human hand has been burned into his back, killing him. There's no immediate sign of Clark's benefactor, so the youth runs out of the warehouse onto a dock. En route, he steps on something that crunches underfoot. It turns out to be an Oreo cookie. Continuing on, Clark sees the silhouette of a man in the distance, bald-headed in a long coat. It was you, wasn't it? The silhouette blinked 
and displayed red luminescent eyes. Then the figure jumped up into the sky, the silhouette hovering within the confines of the moon in the distance, before flying away in a streak of red. Clark returns home to the Kent farm in Smallville. There he's visited by his friend, Chloe Sullivan, reporter for the Daily Planet. So what, your cell phone doesn't get reception in Seattle? preoccupied. That's fine, but you were up against an alien from another planet. I was worried. I'm sorry. So, the crystal was a success? No, it wasn't. Then did the zoner just decide to pack up and leave the solar system? Someone else killed him. Someone who can do things I could only dream of. Whoa. So this someone, he's um, on our side, right? Uh, I'm not sure. Clark, it's me. Your most trusted friend and secret keeper? How about a few details? Believe it or not, there are some things you don't need to know. Look, I understand that you feel like all these psychopathic space invaders are your fault, but you can't keep it all inside. You feel the need to carry the world on your shoulders, and that's noble. But there are other people out there who want to help you fight the good fight, and you need to let them in. Because sometimes even heroes need to be saved. Clark had stepped on an Oreo cookie, which he once again held up to the light so that the logo was clearly visible. No chocos for a Smallville when you can get a product placement instead. That Oreo revealed that the shadowy figure that had saved Clark now had followed him home and knew where he lived. Bum, bum, bum. The cookie bit is pretty dorky and was clearly there for the comic book fans, but it did the job that it was meant to. It got people excited about the prospect of the Martian Hunter showing up on the show. And it's a pretty darn cool cameo. It's a shame the actor went uncredited. Three episodes later came one of the best shows of the series, according to its fans, Justice, which ran on January 8th, 2007. I've mostly only caught bits and pieces of Smallville episodes. I very rarely set out to watch the show. But oddly enough, this specific episode was one of the ones taped by my father on one of the weeks where I happened to visit him and watched it. I was very impressed by the increased scope of the show, the fact that they were trying to take on the entire Justice League. I wasn't aware that Smallville had that kind of ambition. And even re-watching it today, it's still fun, but it's just so cheap. I'm actually kind of impressed by how artfully cheap the show is because it manages to tease out the Justice League for pretty much the entire episode. You get a few scenes of super speed, one of the easiest special effects you can have on a TV show, as Clark Kent is reunited with Bart Allen, Impulse, who served as the Flash for the show. And then there's a bunch of canned 3D graphics that they recycle over and over again throughout the series. And there's a lot of them on familiar sets talking about extravagant things like racing to Mexico for lunch. But you don't actually get to see those things. They just talk about them. There's a lot of interaction between characters that you know are superheroes, but they just don't happen to be in superhero costumes. And they're not doing superhero type stuff. They're just talking about it. It's sort of like how in Reservoir Dogs, you never see Mr. White cut the policeman's 
Jackson's ear off because they tried to shoot that sequence and the effects didn't work very well. So they just cut away and you hear sound effects. And so you think you've seen this horrible image, but really it's just what you've conjured in your imagination. And Smallville has managed to do that in the superhero form. You think you've seen some fantastic stuff in this episode when really not a hell of a lot actually happens, just like in most episodes of Smallville. Anyway, this was a season where they introduced Green Arrow and realizing that they were never going to be able to get the rights to have Batman on television for Smallville turned Green Arrow into an ersatz Batman, which is pretty much what he was created to be anyway. So it was actually a return to form for that character. This worked out well for him across all media because they reinvested in the spare Batman philosophy of writing Green Arrow in the comics. And the comics have done fairly well in recent years. And of course, they had the spinoff show Arrow. And the template for that show is clearly on Smallville, just with a bigger, hunkier actor and a greater fidelity to the Batman aesthetic of Christopher Nolan, as opposed to the more Joel Schumacher-esque qualities of Smallville. Now, in this episode, you're seeing that Oliver Queen and Lois Lane have been in a relationship, which to me as a guy who saw this episode randomly and isolated made me assume that this was something that had been going on for a long period of time. But I look at the season synopsis and I realize that if Oliver Queen was introduced in this season, didn't appear in every episode of the season, and this is already the midpoint, what are we talking about, a six-episode relationship maybe? But it seemingly ends with this episode because Oliver Queen has too much going on with his life to spend time with Lois Lane. But it's a good way to tease fans who expect Clark and Lois to get together and it hadn't happened yet by this point. And again, a good chunk of the episode involving the Justice League is spent with Oliver Queen and Lois Lane talking about the relationship problems on the same sets that are used in every episode. Or Lionel Luthor and Lex Luthor talking about break-ins at various Luthor Corp facilities where they've been holding superhumans hostage so they can experiment on them and create their own superhuman army. But they're talking about doing it. You don't actually get to see any of those captives. You don't get to see break-ins. You don't even get to see any but one of the facilities. So Roger Corman would be proud. Also, there are a lot of insinuations of sexuality and violence that I guess are supposed to make Smallville seem like a more grown-up show than it is. It's actually sophomoric in its handling of those situations. And to me, it feels very incongruous for a Superman, especially a Superboy, technically, show. But I guess it was edgy for teeny bopper CW audiences. So anyway, what we find out is that Green Arrow, who's been popping up throughout this season, has hired Bart Allen Impulse to raid and ransack these Luthor Corps facilities. Lex and Lionel assume that this is actually the Blur, who Lionel knows is Clark Kent. The Blur, of course, being the bogus way in which Smallville managed to not have Superboy be Superboy until he becomes Superman at the very end of the series, even though he's doing superhero type stuff. So they set a trap for the Blur and they catch Impulse instead. This prompts Clark to confront Green Arrow, who I believe through Chloe as they've determined that they're all working together. And that's when Oliver Queen reveals that he also has the Smallville versions of Aquaman and Cyborg in tow as part of his team. So essentially Green Arrow has formed the Justice League and Superman's been completely out of the loop because he's not Superman. He's not even Superboy. It's a long-standing criticism of the series. By the way, with this show, I assume that most people who bother to listen to a Marshman or podcast are going to have a functional knowledge of DC Comics. But I keep referring to Chloe, and Chloe doesn't, for the most part, exist in the comics. So just to clarify, Chloe Sullivan was created for the Smallville TV show, really out of the best aspects of Lana Lang and Lois Lane from the comics. She's a childhood friend of Clark Kent's, who is his confidant, who knows all of his secrets, and helps him on his adventures. She's a reporter for the Smallville school newspaper and eventually graduates to becoming a reporter for the Daily Planet in Metropolis, at least for a while. Mr. Queen, it's Chloe Sullivan. Clark sent me. Where's Clark? He went to rescue Bart. He told you about Bart? 
We trust each other. Clark tells me everything. Well, almost everything. I did have to figure out about your green leather fetish on my lonesome. Don't worry, I didn't say anything to Lois. Although you might want to consider... Yeah, let's just stick to the, the main plot there, sidekick. So what do you got? Clark Kent goes off to investigate one of these Luthor Corp plants, and he stumbles upon a room full of kryptonite, falls to the floor, and is completely passive and worthless for a good chunk of the episode, which was apparently a recurring problem with this series. Meanwhile, his best friend, reporter Chloe, uses Oliver Queen's technology to help guide the group throughout this compound to save both Impulse and now Clark Kent, and she essentially becomes a proxy oracle, a major character in the DC comics, and an identity formed by Batgirl after she'd been crypt by the Joker and wanted to continue to participate in superhero adventures despite her becoming paraplegic. Once again, this pseudo-Oracle was ported over to the Arrow series when it got started via the supporting character and sometimes girlfriend Felicity Smoke. Green Arrow takes the lead. He takes out a bunch of the guards of this facility with his cool trick arrows and he makes Superman look like a chump with trick arrows. So we say Superman. Sorry, Clark Kent. Definitely not Superman. While Cyborg gathers all the information he can on Lex Luthor's secret superhuman project, 33.1, and I think Aquaman does some stuff as well. I I can't tell you exactly what. I know he comes out of some water shirtless at one point, beats up a few guards. I I don't know really what else he was doing. Clark Kent, a.k.a. Boy Scout, as codenamed by Green Arrow, does manage to use his super speed to save Impulse from a death trap created by Lex Luthor. But otherwise, his main contribution to the story is not getting in Green Arrow's way when he decides to blow up this base. And that sets up the idea iconic shot of the Justice League walking away from the exploding facility with Clark Kent at the fore of a sort of bird flight triangle thingy, which again doesn't make sense because he's not the leader of the team. He's actually been this indecisive, ineffectual element and isn't even a member of the team. So why is he at the fore of it? But it made for a cool shot that they've screen crapped to death. It's all over the internet. Watchtower, are you sure everyone's out of the building? 100% positive. And it's funny too because this is a great big green screen explosion and the great thing about explosives is they're relatively cheap so any production at any level can afford to have some and it makes it look like something really major has happened when really it's just hey look some fire and some guys in some terrible costumes that are sort of like converted streetwear the just the laziest cosplay you've ever seen but hey the television's finally got their live action Justice League that they were denied back in 97 but see Martian Manhunter isn't a part of this team but I'm glad at least he shows up in the very next episode following Labyrinth. Friend Chloe's gonna be here any minute. Any minute. Thanks for your help, buddy. What's wrong, boy? See something I know? Earth to super freak. <laughs> Everyone, please, sit down. What's going on? Well, you said that you and your dog were in the barn when you heard something. And then you left us for a bit. How'd I get here? So, 
What attacked you? Was it a crypto freak again? <laughs> no, 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 I know. It, it was a spirit from the Phantom Zone, right? Kal-El? How do you know that name? Because you never shut up about it. Oh, great son of Jarrell. Settle down, gentlemen. Wait, back off! Take it easy, Clark. Take those deep breaths we talked about. Who are you? It's me. Dr. Hudson. Hold on, I don't want to have to hurt anyone. Why don't you just use your super speed and run away? <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? What do you want? What's happening? Let me go! Someone! Why am I here? Lex. He's always wanted to get me under his microscope. I'm afraid your obsession with Lex Luthor is part of the fantasy world that you created. After you experience your psychotic break. You want me to think I'm crazy? Well, we prefer not to use pejoratives. You suffer from paranoid schizophrenia. You're sick. And your condition is getting worse. But the good news is, I have developed a new treatment that will cure you. For the last five and a half years, you've been a resident of the Fairview Psychiatric Hospital. Don't hide that pill under your tongue. Swallow it. You're not crazy, Kalel. We don't have much time, so listen to me closely. I believe you're from another planet. What makes you say that? Because like you, I'm not from here. I come from Mars. You can't trust anyone. Hey! Don't even think about it. At the urging of fellow inmate John, Clark Kent breaks loose of the asylum and begins a not-so-wonderful-life journey, a bit of a mashup of 12 monkeys and the butterfly effect, including at least one scene of a guy who has stubs where his legs used to be. Not as hilarious as Ashton Kutcher's, but not bad. And one of the nice things for me as a guy who doesn't normally watch the show is that by having Clark go to familiar surroundings that aren't what they're supposed to be in this delusional state, I'm introduced to it. Like, for instance, I didn't realize that that stock shot of a sign that says Talon meant that everybody hung out in a coffee shop that was a refurbished old movie theater and that Chloe lived in the apartment above the coffee shop. It's just ironic to me that Clark's confusion actually helps clear some things up for me. Another thing that's interesting is that in this delusional state, Clark is so much more proactive than he ever is, but at the end of the day, he still ends up giving himself up and going back to the asylum, submitting to the procedure. That's my Superman. One key sequence in breaking down Clark Kent to realize that he is in fact crazy and needs to take part in the curative procedure is when he looks around the room and sees all these artifacts of his delusion of being Superman and realizing that he'd been pulling from these elements to create his internal narrative. Convince me and tell me every you know, last Back when I was in that barbershop quartet in Skokie, Illinois. Where's your head, Agent Kuyan? What we need to do is think. Think back. I'm sure you've heard many tall tales. Bricks Marlin. This isn't right. I just want to tell hear you every last It's all there. And I'm telling it straight, I swear. Can't give in, Kello. You must resist. None of this is real. Leave me alone. Listen to me. When you were attacked in the barn, you were infected by a being that you released from the Phantom Zone. The Phantom Zone doesn't exist. Yes, it does. And if you were a human, 
That spirit would have taken you over with ease, like Saad did with Lex Luthor. But you're a lot stronger than that. You're Kryptonian. Your patient in a mental hospital is just as crazy as I am. If you give in to Hudson and undergo this treatment, the entity will gain control of your body with all its powers and unite the other fugitives from the Phantom Zone. Together, they'll enslave all of mankind. If this is all in my head, then how are you here? I'm in your mind as well, trying to help. But there's only one way to purge this parasite and regain your consciousness. You have to kill Hudson. Kill Hudson? I can't kill a man. He's not a man. Hudson's a phantom. You told me not to trust anyone. Why should I trust you? You know who you are, Kalel. Trust yourself. If it isn't our little visitor from Mars. Look within. Believe in yourself. The future of mankind depends on it. What's the matter there, Freak, huh? Scared of a little fire? Isn't Mars the red-hot planet? Welcome home. Get him out of here. It's time, Mr. Kent. It's Lana Lang that ultimately convinces Clark to undergo the procedure, and her disappearance during that procedure that first clues in Clark that perhaps he isn't delusional after all. Further, he begins to hear barking and realizes that he's still in the barn with Shelby the dog. He fights off the orderlies and kills the doctor, which is revealed to be an alien phantom. Clark wakes up in the barn, where John Jones is holding a red jewel above his form and drawing the phantom into it. Seeing the shipment makes me wonder if maybe that's what John Jones was wearing during the Brightest Day miniseries. My assumption is that it was inspired by this story. Kal-El recognizes John Jones as his savior in his conflict with Andar. But as predicted at the very beginning of the episode, Chloe pulls up and John streaks out at super speed, then flies away as a red streak, which looks cool, but it kind of bugs me because if it were a blue streak or a purple streak, that'd be a little bit more Martian Manhunter y. But I suppose that's nitpicking. I actually like this episode of Smallville. It's better than most that I've watched. I tend to get a kick out of the darkest timeline trope in general, but I can't deny that I'm a bit disappointed at how little John Jones has to do in the show. There's actually a deleted scene that you can find on YouTube or on the season six DVD set that runs about two and a half minutes that gives a lot more information on John Jones than had been in the series so far. It confirmed that he was the alien from the static episode through his appearance at Clark's loft and his holding up an Oreo 
cookie, like he was a diamond or something. He tells his origin. He tells of his mission to help Kal-El. It's exactly what I was going to ask. Telepathy is one of my many abilities, Kal-El. How do you know my name? I know a lot more about you than that. When the meteors descended upon Smallville, I knew Krypton was gone. From that day on, I've been watching over you like I promised Jor-El. My father never told me I had a guardian angel. Oh, I'm no angel. But I've kept an eye on you from afar. Jor-El preferred it that way. But when the spirits and corporeal beings escaped the Phantom Zone, I was forced to clean up your mess. I never asked for your help. But you needed it. Or have you forgotten I had to save your life? Twice. I dealt with these phantoms when I was a bounty hunter. I know how powerful they can be. And there's one still out there who poses the greatest threat you've ever encountered. I've already defeated Zod. The enemy I speak of makes Zod look like child's play. I can't fight these fugitives alone. I don't have your powers. I'm doing the best I can. It's not good enough. You're too preoccupied with living the life of a human. When are you going to realize that they're never going to accept you as one of their own? You don't know what you're talking about. We're not that different, Kal-El. But I've been on this planet a lot longer than you and have a better understanding of this race. The humans are terrified of what they don't know. And sadly, you and I happen to fall into that category. I have family and friends who would prove you wrong. But they're making you weak. No matter how hard you try, you'll never be human. It's time to accept the fact you're an alien. I initially wasn't going to cover the deleted scene in this episode because I assumed they would just be repurposed further on in the series when John Jones was reintroduced. But having seen his return in the season finale episode, Phantom, 10 episodes later, the character is given severe short shrift in the actual series by comparison with this material. His origins are not touched on at all in that episode, and his personality, motivations, and mission are substantially changed. I actually really like how adversarial John Jones is here. This is a guy who seems to be fulfilling some sense of duty to Jor-El, but doesn't seem to particularly like Kal-El, and calls him out on some issues that had plagued the series. And in the later episode, it's stated that John Jones worked for Jor-El rather than with him, which is a bit grating for me as a Martian Manhunter fan. The notion of John Jones as a bounty hunter is interesting as well because it's a very different take on the character from a person motivated by a sense of responsibility to protect and serve, like a police officer, which is the role that John Jones usually has. A bounty hunter is much more mercenary, much less restricted by law. And with his attitude, with his look, his flashy purple coat, he actually reminds me a great deal of the minor supporting character Glenn Gameron, who had a run toward the end of Justice League Task Force playing a similar role, except that he was the one talking smack to John Jones. So I'm curious to see if this interpretation of the character will continue through the series. I do have to commend Phil Morris, too, because that is some clunky, stilted dialogue that he managed to deliver with such gravitas that makes me really enjoy the character and he very much stands out from the other CW actors. My understanding that Phil Morris had to keep auditioning for this role over and over again, which is fairly uncommon for television and especially for the CW. My suspicion is the CW probably wanted a younger actor. At the time of this production, Phil Morris was well into his 40s, which is a good 10 to 15 years past the CW's typical casting, but he was just so good in the role that they couldn't deny him this part. Your ego betrays you. Will you not listen to reason? This won't end well for you. We received retweets and favorites from Ange, Charlton Hero, Danilo Santiago, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Dr. G Nerdologist, Eternal Rage, Fantastiverse, Lynn Walker, Cord Industries, Luke Dobwalker, Martin Gray, Mentor at Mentor's Camper, Odyssey Unleashed Podcast, Randy Caldwell, Scott Bachman, Sin at Trekker Talk. 
as well as retweets from DCU Movie Page, Firestorm Fan, Guano Man, Joseph Crawford, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Pettit, Longbox Graveyard, Mark Sweeney, Ryan C. at Trash Film Guru, and Siskoid, as well as favorites from Count Druncula, David Golding Artist, Ed Moore at Indie Comics Fan and Teal Productions, Eli at Perrin, Inigo Montoya, Jacob Edwards, Mithrandir at Clones694, and Oscar Blue Devil, plus a follow Friday from Comic Reflections. The 108th Sage wrote, I'm absolutely loving Rolled Spine podcast and pretty much everything Commander Blanks has produced, and I dearly love his cohorts on the Marvel Superheroes podcast. Me too. One of which, Illegal Machine, tweeted back, Frank's the best. Randy Caldwell wrote, I'm afraid I have to agree with you as usual. Oh crap. Um, about the Marshman Hunter covers, John looks like some kind of hybrid Batra larvae and Zorak. You're going to have to watch out for the cover to Marshman Hunter number six by Eric Canetta. It contains what looks to be a pretty major spoiler. It's too late for me, friends, but save yourselves. And wrote, I think we won't see a merged John until the White Martian threat is done. Hoping this will happen by end of first year. But I think we just learned the split personality of John. It feels like too soon to reconstitute himself. I barely get the scope of the threat he's fighting. I can understand the frustration, but I'm entertained. I hope this will end okay. As for FaZe, I was unsure if I should remind you that Phantom Girl was codenamed FaZe in the Legion. L-E-G-I-O-N acronym. I worry about you, dude. Finally, Martin Gray of the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog attended Thought Balloon, the Leeds Comic Art Festival, on November 9th through 15th. He let us know that he was talking to Rob Williams, the writer of the current Marshmallow series, about the blog and the podcast. Said he's a top chap, and he sent us a virtual signed copy of Marshmallow Number 1 by Rob Williams. You can check that out on the blog. Podcast listeners should feel free to leave a comment on one of our blogs, either the Umbrella Rolled Spine Podcasts or the specific Idle Head of Diablo blog. Both are available quite easily through Google searches. You can also shoot me a tweet at Commander Blanks. That's B-L-A-N-X. Thank you for listening.